My name is Taylor. Um, I'm one of the pastors here and part of an awesome team of people that teach on Sundays, both here up and up in Cedar Rapids. Um, but we're t- kicking off this series, jumping right in, um, and oh, a couple things that I want to say before we get started, uh, and that is, um, one, if you consider yourself a Christian, if you consider yourself an atheist, if you consider yourself apathetic to religion in general, as in other words, you, like, I could care less kind of thing, and somehow you stumbled onto this video, or somehow a friend convinced you to watch today, or brought you today, um, or you're somewhere in the between in that spectrum, right, between like atheism and apathy apathy and and Christian, there's almost a 100% chance that I am going to make you uncomfortable or very uncomfortable in the next three weeks. In fact, if I don't, please let me know. It is not my goal in the next three weeks to make you uncomfortable. My goal is for you to know God or the Christian version of God better. However, in that journey, it may... um, adjust some perceptions that you have held from a ver- for a very long time. Perceptions about Christianity. Again, no matter where you are in the faith spectrum, um, especially uh, perceptions and understandings that perhaps you were raised with or is maybe more traditional or stereotypical within the Christian faith. Because my goal is to not teach you what you just want to hear sometimes. My goal is to hopefully teach you some truth. And in truth, there is freedom and there is understanding and there is growth. Um, otherwise, if you try to build a lie upon a lie upon a lie, and not that that our versions of heaven or some more um, challenging aspects of Christianity are necessarily a lie, but they're kind of a bit of a not a full truth. And when you do that, it doesn't build a faith that's resilient and strong. And so that's one of the things we want to help you to do here because that's why we started the church is so we could help unchurched people or people that have been away from the church or don't understand Christianity or faith, help them to build a faith that is strong. Um, now, in this journey, uh, you may have some questions. And so we're going to set aside some time at the end of this month to field those questions. It may be related to the series. It may be related to like the church in general. There have been a lot of changes going on, especially this year with um, um, adding location Cedar Rapids and all those changes. And so we're going to do a, a question and response time, not a question and answer time, because I don't want to promise that I have answers, but a question and response time. And so at the end, I'm going to give you a QR code, or if you have questions, type them into your phone, write them down along this journey, and hopefully we can tackle some of those at the end of this month, okay? The goal, though, just remember, the goal is by the end of the three weeks, you know God, or the Christian version of God, if you don't consider yourself Christian, better. That's the goal, okay? So we're all going to do something a little different. We're going to take a breath together because I need you to stick with me for the next three weeks. Because if you get today and you're like, "Ooh, I have more questions than answers, then you need to be here tomorrow. You see, it kind of builds on itself. Already? Ready? We're going to take a breath. Here we go. (sighs) It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Just tell yourself it's going to be okay. All right. So you know those moments uh, in your life where you're talking to somebody and you disagree on the timing of events. You ever have something like that? Like I had, a, I had a conversation this week. Actually, this is a regular part of my life these days. A conversation uh, with a person that I was talking to. And um, they said uh, something to the effect of yesterday, grandma was here. They said yesterday, grandma was here. Okay, and this was spoken by an unknown person. I'll tell you in a second who that was. This was weird. It's one of those moments in your brain where you're like, that's not right at all. Because my perception was, my understanding was, grandma was here one week ago. 
And this is one of those moments where you sit there and you kind of think to yourself, oh, that was Taylor who said that, okay? Um, you think to yourself, well, how in the world could there be such a discrepancy? You ever have that? Where you look at the other person and you're like, that was not yesterday, you know? Usually, you know, it's within a marriage, you know? It's like, honey, <laughs> you're, to- you're totally wrong. Um, you know, you, h- how could there be such a discrepancy of, of such a great time difference, yesterday versus one week ago? Okay? Is something wrong with the person? That's kind of your first thought. Is something wrong with you? Like, what are you thinking? You know, what's wrong with you? Um, or there could be another reason. In fact, there could be lots of reasons, but there's one reason in particular that there is such a discrepancy in this one particular conversation I had this week. Anybody want to take a random stab? You kind of have to know who I am to guess, but you want to take a stab at why there was such a discrepancy here? Yes, that's exactly right. Close, four-year-old. Yes, yes, because that was said by Everly, my now four-year-old. She just turned four a week ago. So actually, I don't know if it was exactly a week ago, but oh yeah, it was exactly a week ago. It was. (laughs) Look at me. Okay. Um, So anyways, yeah, that was the four-year-old speaking. Okay. And um, that, that makes sense, right? So who was right? Who was right? Was I right or was she right? Well, technically, technically who was right? I was right, right? Grandma wasn't here yesterday. Grandma was here a week ago. And so the appropriate response for me to make to my four-year-old daughter would have been what? Oh, honey, you're wrong. It was a week ago. That's what you would say, right? Okay, yeah, that would be kind of mean, right? It would be a little insensitive to say that, to assume that they were going to get that right. And it doesn't feel right to say something like that. You might say, oh yeah, grandma was here recently because you got what they meant, right? What was she saying in her mind? She was saying that in the recent past, right? She got that right. She didn't say grandma is coming. She said grandma was here yesterday. She said past and yesterday is recent past. And that's true. Grandma was recently here. But it's really hard for us as adults to not look at someone who gets a timing wrong and kind of look at them and give them a hard time for it, isn't it? We kind of like to say, no, here's what's right. Here's what's true. And the problem with this little example that I just gave you is we do this all the time with the Bible, like all the time. C.S. Lewis, um, who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you're familiar with those books or the movies, I think they're coming out like, like a TV show or something, he had a name for it. He called it chronological snobbery. And in all fairness, let's be honest, for me to say that to my daughter Everly, something to the effect of, you're wrong, it was a week ago, that would kind of be snobby, wouldn't it? And what C.S. Lewis's point was, is there are times when because you are more educated, because you have lived longer, because you have lived in a different historical period for that matter, you look back on everyone else as if they were less than you and that you are better than them, that they are almost completely wrong and you are almost always right because you know more, because you've lived longer, or because you've, uh, you exist in a time period that is more educated, more aware of reality. In my opinion, I would say to you that if, if you had to decide who was right, I would say the reality is Everly was just as right 
as I was. Because in her worldview, in her understanding of the universe and timing and the world, grandma was recently here in the past. Even though accurately, it would have been more true to say one week ago. But yet all of us adults have this tendency to say what was wrong or tend to say some things that are a little bit snobby. And then we do this with the Bible, as I was saying. We do this with the Bible all the time. Because, and when we do it, we miss some beautiful, wonderful things that the biblical authors have to teach us. And we miss it because we take our 21st century technologically superior perspectives and then take the author's writings and we twist them into a meaning that conforms to our way of higher thought. That's a lot, but it's really true. And we're kind of snobby about it. And we're going to see in the next few minutes how that impacts our understanding of a lot of things, including heaven. And I'm going to tell you this. And I think it's real, I really believe that this is true. Christians and atheists alike, Christians and really everyone alike, do this. They go and attack the Bible. If you watch Christian and atheist debates on YouTube, which it's kind of interesting to watch, you can learn a lot. Um, but if you watch this online, you will see this chronological snobbery all the time because they're debating writings that are thousands of years old as if they were written in the modern 21st century. And I think we are all equally guilty of doing this. Instead, what we should do is we should treat the biblical authors and the words that God inspired the biblical authors to write down and to pass down as right as if a four-year-old taught them. Not because the four-year-old is less valuable, not because the four-year-old doesn't have some profound things to say, but because you're just a 30, 40, 50, 60-year-old person looking at a four-year-old and saying, you know what? I get what you're getting or trying to get across and seeing the beauty in what they have to share because there is immense beauty in the words of a four-year-old. So let's take... A transition then. And we're going to talk about heaven with that chronological snobbery as a bit of a background to help us to understand our version of heaven. Okay? I'm going to introduce to you, I'm going to switch to black just so it shows up better. Um, I realize this might be a little small for some of you. But we're going to talk about what heaven is or our general perception. Now, this may not encompass all of your perceptions in the room today, but I think it's a pretty wide stereotypical view of what we see heaven as, all right? And that is a place you go after you die, number one. And in that place, you get the benefit of living on. There is life after death. Two, generally we think of as a real positive, is you get to see your loved ones. So that's a positive. You get to live on and you get to see your loved ones. Number three, another benefit or ideal we have around heaven is that heaven gives meaning to our earthly lives. Because, and this is a great argument from an atheist perspective, um, if, if there is no life after death, then, um, or Christian argument, then is life meaningful? 
Is there purpose to it? If all that happens after you die, after 75, um, you know, average years of life, the end is the end. Is there meaning? But if you have heaven as your final destination, then I think it gives us more significance for what we do and how we live and the reason, the purpose for our lives now. And I think a lot of us have that in the back of our minds. Honestly, I would say a lot of agnostics or atheists have it in the back of their minds as a benefit of heaven. Number four, heaven, no particular order, but heaven is a reward for what? Good behavior, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, it's a reward for good behavior. You do, a good, you have a good life, you should have a good place to go. Um, number five, absent of suffering and sin. Okay, absent of suffering and sin. And so that sounds like a pretty nice place to go. There's no bad things happening there. And then I'll even give you a bonus. There's some bonuses with heaven. Pearly gates, sunshine, no humidity, And what else do we want to put up there? Oh, sure, street gold. I'm just going to put gold. Absolutely. Think of all that gold. Wow. Wonder what gold's going for in heaven these days. Um, yeah, and clouds, beautiful clouds. Okay, perfect. All right, so you, get, you got some bonus things to look forward to there, right? Now, some of you are already thinking, which you're thinking ahead, and that's, that's awesome. You're thinking, oh, no, Taylor, are you going to tell me that all of these things are not what we thought about heaven? Okay? Okay? And if so, you're probably going to leave the church. Don't leave the church, at least until the end of the series, okay? Keep breathing. <clears throat> I would not say that this is heaven in the biblical sense. I would call this, this is the name I came up for it, um, half truth heaven. Okay? That, yes, there are truths in all of these things, but they're not necessarily 100% truths. They're not something that you can 100% count on, as you're going to see over the next few weeks. In fact, I would even argue to you, all of these things on this list are not even the best part of heaven, as you're going to learn over the next few weeks. It's not even the best part of heaven. In fact, heaven is so much better. However, this is our chronological snobbery, a bit, at work. This is our church tradition's formed over thousands of years at work versus, I think, a little bit of what the actual Bible says about heaven. Simple example, pearly gates. Honestly, kind of just gates in general, all right? Think about gates. I can get gates at Menards, okay? My personal hope, yours may be different, but that God could do a little bit better than Menards. Just my personal perception. Okay? That when I get to the, the entryway, the start of heaven, they're going to be better than just some pearly gates. I feel like personally, God could probably come up with something a little bit more impressive than gates. Now, what about your loved ones? Oh, well, when I get to heaven, I get to see my loved ones. Absolutely. Sure. I think there is some biblical precedent for that. However, did you also consider that your high school bully 
could very well be at heaven when you get there too, right? If the criminal on the cross is going to be with Jesus in paradise after doing something so heinous, they, they literally hung him from a Roman crucifix and killed him. And Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in heaven. I think there is a plausible thought that your bully from middle school or high school or elementary school is going to be there waiting for you. So is heaven as great? If all heaven is, is where you go when you die. Just saying. I want you to notice something about this list. Something that, honestly, I didn't realize until like last night when I was working on this a little bit more. There's a common theme in all of these. A common theme in all of these. And that is that our stereotype of heaven is not about anything other than you. You get to live on. You get to be with loved ones. You get to have meeting. You get to have a reward for all of your good behavior. And you get to exist in a space that is absent of suffering and sin. And if you are lucky, you get to have pavement of gold to walk on. Did you ever notice that? That our version of heaven is all about me. It's all about what we want and what we get or what we think we deserve. Honestly, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like a little snobby. Sounds like a little snobby. A version of heaven, I'm just going to say this, a version of heaven with you at the center will not bring you the peace and joy that your heart longs for now on earth and in eternity. Because that is not the heaven God has designed. God did not think, I'm going to make a heaven so that Taylor will be happy. Taylor will have everything he needs. That's not why. And now I think you're starting to process that that actually makes sense. That it's not just about you. So I want to tell you, or start to tell you, at least over the next three weeks, we can't, there's way too much to cover in just three hours or really an hour and a half of me talking for the next three weeks in total, not just today. I'm not talking for an hour and a half, just breathe. Okay. I want to let you know about the heaven I'm still learning about, but that the heaven that I've fallen in love with. And to do that, we have to begin with Genesis 1. And we did this a couple of years ago in a series called Stranger Things. So you're more than welcome to go check that out. I'm going to get rid of this. So if you need to, um, you know, take a picture of it, you can, but, um, oh, it'll be online too. So you can all go critique it and watch it and send me notes. And uh, that would be great. But we got to get rid of this for the time being. Okay. Okay. We're going to start with Genesis 1. And that's how we're going to start to understand God. All right. So to understand Genesis 1, we have to understand what he said. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so here I'm going to draw a diagram. Some of you may be familiar with this diagram. Again, we've done it before, or maybe you've seen it in some other resources. And he created essentially two areas, if you will. One is the heavens, and one is the earth. Okay, so we're going to draw heavens up here. Because heavens, we always think of as up, and that is a very true biblical theme. And then we're going to talk about earth down here. And there's these concentric circles, okay, that are interlocked. Now, here's the first hint that heaven is not what you always thought it was. And it's right here in 1-1 of Genesis. First, first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens, not singular, 
Not heaven, he created the heavens, okay? It's plural. In fact, heavens in the Bible in Hebrew, because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the New Testament's in ancient Greek. And in Hebrew, um, the word heavens, shemaim, is always in a plural form. Even when we translate, we'll translate it into English as a singular form, but it is always plural. In fact, the first 10 times in Genesis, I forgot, I took a screenshot, I forgot to put it in the slide deck. The first 10 times in Genesis 1, chapter 1 alone, 10 times, it is translated nine out of those 10 times, not as heavens. Nine out of 10 times in Genesis 1, it is translated as sky. This is the one time in Genesis 1 that this word, shemaim, is translated into heavens. Because what is contextually the author of this part of the Bible trying to get across to us is that there is heavens is a broader thing than just heaven. It's a plural thing. And we're going to understand that as the ancient Israelites go on explaining. Not our 21st century view, American view, not our snobby view. Okay, you got to think in terms of like Everly and her dad talking about something, right? We're going to think in their terms, in the way they saw the world and understand how they did that and how they saw the heavens. And we do that by going through the rest of the creation story. Now, we don't have time to go the whole thing, but I'll skip to kind of the main points, all right? So Genesis um, 1, chapter, uh, verse 2. And the earth was formless and desolate emptiness, that in Hebrew is so fun. I'm just going to give you, it has nothing to do with the message. It's just really fun, okay? It's tovu vavohu, okay? So if you want to impress your friends, it's not going to impress your friends. But if you want to, I think it's just really fun to say. Formless and void in Hebrew is tovu vavohu. There you go. You learned something today. You're welcome. And there was darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And waters is in Hebrew, maim. Okay, so you have heavens, which is shemaim, and then waters, you have mime. And I don't know about you, but growing up, I always sat there, I sat there and like, so there was water, but God hasn't created anything. How does that work? Well, because if you think in 21st century terms, it doesn't work. If you think in ancient Israelite terms, it works. Because in their minds, okay, they are completely surrounded. If you go one way or the other way or the other way, you're surrounded by what? Water. And in their minds, as you're going to see in just a second, in fact, they are not only surrounded physically by water, they're surrounded on all dimensions by water in an ancient Israelite's mind, which makes sense. So we're going to have the water here, okay? So we have waters, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Then God goes on, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness because it was dark, right? It was dark and watery. Water always signifies, almost always, um, especially in the early part of the Bible, it's chaos. Chaos, uncertainty and unknown. How many Israelites crossed the Atlantic Ocean? Zero, right. Why? Because you go out there, you die, right? It is this impenetrable, scary thing. We think, oh, no, we, we cross that. We fly over it, <laughs> you know? But in ancient Israelites' mind, it's terrible, okay? God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning on day one. Now, if you think in 21st century terms, you're thinking to yourself, okay, wait a second. How is that possible? Because there's not a sun or a moon yet. You're right. He doesn't do that until 16. But somehow there's light, verse 16, somehow there is light and dark. 
If you put on your 21st century mind, it doesn't work. If you put on your ancient Israel mind, it works because how do they see it? Well, if the sun come, if, when you, if you watch the sunrise today, was there light preceding the sun? And when the sun sets, is there light postseding the sun? Sun's down. Is there still light? Yes. So there's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation between a sun and that there is light. So light could exist absent of that big ball of light in the sky. And so that's how there's light and darkness before. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And this word expanse is not just um, uh, a space. Uh, This is the same Hebrew word that they used for a shield, um, or a bronze shield. And the reason that they use this, this word, rakia, is because they thought of the world, this expanse, as a dome, as a protectorate that spanned the expanse, spanned the heavens. It spanned it. And why in the world would you need a shield above you if you lived on the ground? Why would you need that? Well, they go to say, God made the expanse and separated the waters that were below the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. Oh, so in their minds, there's water up here. You see where this is going now? Because if it rains, where does that come from? The sky. And what color is the sky? You're getting it. (laughs) Yeah, a little, and if you're online, it's a, it's a child answering this. Um, and, uh, and what color is water? If the sky is blue, what color is water? Blue, right? And so if water comes down from heavens, you need something to what? Hold it up. Because your mind goes, well, clouds. No, stop it. <laughs> you got to stop that. That's not how they saw the world and wrote this. Expanse of the water, expanse below. God called the expanse heavens. And there was evening and there was morning on the second day. And let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place so that dry land appeared. And it was so. So now you have waters below, waters above. If you dig down far enough, what are you going to find? More than likely, water. And if you go up high enough... Their assumption was you're going to find water. Water above, water below. That's why when you hear in the Bible, this is what's going to start unlocking your understanding of the biblical story. That's why in Noah's account, in Genesis um, 8 and 7 or in Malachi chapter 3, they talk about the floodgates of heavens. What floodgates? So God just has these pools of water sitting up there? I don't know if they cared or knew But they thought if there is a gate in the dome, in the rakia that opens up, what's going to happen? The earth will be flooded with all the water, the vast water. If you go outside and you look up at the vastness of the sky and the blue up there, that's probably a lot of water. And it could come down. And then God creates the earth. And then he goes on, skipping ahead a few verses. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens in the sky to separate the day from the night, and they shall serve as signs for the season and the days and the years. So now God's putting lights up there. And what did he put up there? He put up a sun, okay? And what did the sun purpose? Well, they said um, 
two, two great lights, and the greater to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night, the sun and the moon, and he made the stars also. And what was the purpose of that? said the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth. So part of the purpose of that sun is to give light. Now, mind you, there is already light independent of it, but it's to help. It's to add more light to it. And then you're going to have some stars up here, right? Oh man, I drew the drawing too high. We'll figure it out. Okay. And then you're going to have the moon. That's a terrible moon. So sorry. Um, You're going to have the moon. Okay. And so you have great lights in the heavens and they gave purpose to it. And then what else did they put in there? Um, God said, uh, let the, now in verse 20, let the waters teem with the swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the heavens in the open expanse of the heavens or the shemaim. Because that's where they go, right? And so now we got birds in here, right? And they're in the heavens, okay? Because to, 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 the, to the person who doesn't fly on a commercial jetliner, Up here is fairly divine, which would make sense, right? The biblical authors saw the heavens and the skies as layered. You got birds in there. You got waters in there. You got uh, stars and the sun and the moon. And then above all of that, you have what? God. At the very highest of heavens. You ever heard that phrase? The highest of heavens. What do you mean the highest of heavens? There's only one heaven, right? No, the very highest. That's why, again, when you go and start reading the Bible and you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and Paul says, third heaven. And you're scratching your head like, why is he talking about the third heaven? There's like multiple heavens now? I'm so confused. Well, if you think this is a heaven and this is a heaven, then up here, the highest of heaven would in order logically say it is the third heaven. Or in Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 4. You know these verses very well. It's the great commandments, the Ten Commandments, and the first commandment. Have no other God in heaven above or in the waters under the earth. That is the command. But you never thought about that last part, right? You weren't taught that in catechism because it was kind of weird. How is there waters under the earth? That doesn't make sense. In your 21st century mind, it doesn't. But in their mind, it does. And the passages, when you start to think about it, unlock your four-year-old brain for a second. It unlocks and helps you to understand what these biblical authors are trying to get across, and it starts to make so much more sense. Now, let's connect this to heaven. Um, And I apologize, we are going to run out of time, my bad. Okay, so here's the question. What is heaven? I'll give you the answer right off the bat. Where God is. That's what heaven is. He's in the highest temple. He is above all the holy temple where the throne resides. And you read that in Psalms 11, 115, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 66. Okay, Many passages speak to God's rule and where he resides. And here's the best part. Here's the best part of this whole thing. God doesn't stay in heaven. God doesn't just stay up there at the top. And you know this story. You've probably heard this story. How often, if you've ever experienced the Bible, read the Bible, how often does God not leave heaven, but come to earth? All the time. Does it all the time, in so many different forms, all throughout the biblical story. 
And every time he does, the space that he resides is holy, is transformed, is made made new. Moses in the burning bush, the space is made holy. Moses on Mount Sinai, the ground is made like sapphires, blue sapphires. Why? Because it's the blue sky. And so the sky became whole and strong and could support Moses walking on it. How else did God come down or heaven came to earth? Jesus, God made flesh. And everything that Jesus interacted with consistently, not everything, but everything that chose to receive Jesus became holy and good and divine and heavenly on earth. What did God do? God created humankind and put them in a very specific garden. And they called that garden Eden. In Hebrew, that word is delight. He put them in delight. In Greek, it's paradise. And when God put humanity in there, God gave them a purpose. And the purpose was to rule. God walked with them on earth in paradise, heaven on earth. God with you. Because God is good. And God wants to be with his creation. But then it became bad. Because humanity thought they were in charge and betrayed God's trust. And because of that, they had to leave that paradise. They had to leave that paradise and occupy the earth. This is Eden. This is paradise. Where heaven meets earth. And the rest of the story, the rest of this, from Genesis chapter 3 to the end, is a story about God trying again and again to connect to his people, to redeem them, to restore them, and bring them once again to himself. Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy king, your kingdom come, God, on earth as it is in heaven. Where did God want heaven to show up on earth. And Jesus said to the criminal on the cross, truly I say to you, today you will be with me, not in heaven. What did he say? Today you will be with me in paradise. Because that's the word, the Greek word for Eden is paradise. Where is paradise? Paradise is with God. It's a part of his goodness. When you look at Paul in Philippians and Corinthians, he says all the time this theme, with Christ or with the Lord. The prodigal son, the prodigal son returns home and the other brother's really angry about it. And the dad, who represents God, turns to the prodigal son and says, son, you don't have to be angry. You were always with me. You just didn't think this was good enough. This wasn't good enough for you, but you were always with with me. The biblical authors, the view that they had of the life and the universe was that God just wants to be with us. He wants to be together with us in a place of delight, a place of perfection, a place of goodness, a place of holiness, a place of love. God wants to be with us. That's why we say the church is not a building or a place, it's a people. The church reflects the heart of God. And the heart of God is, it's not a place, it's about presence. It's not about place, it's about presence. And God wants us to be present. The goal of heaven is not to get there. The goal isn't heaven. It's to be with God. And the result of being with God is eternal life. The result of being with God is a place that is absent of suffering and pain and is eternal 
It's a person, not a place. God shown through Jesus. I want to give you this analogy to kind of close out. Maybe this will help. Why do you imagine my kids, all three of them, all my three girls, why do you think they love going to grandma's house? Because it's fancy? It's not that fancy. Because it has pearly gates? Doesn't have pearly gates. Is it even about the house? No. It's because grandma's there. And if grandma's at a park, how great is that park? It's a pretty great park. And do they want to be at that park? They want to be at that park with grandma. Why? Because grandma is there. And do you think on the drive to grandma's house, they worry about what they're going to eat at grandma's house? Do you think that crosses their mind? No. Crosses dad's mind, but not their mind. Because they know grandma's going to feed them. Do you think on the drive to grandma's house, they're thinking, oh, where am I going to sleep? What's it going to be like? Nope. Because they know grandma will prepare a room for them. It's not about the where. It's about who is there. And more directly, and I want you to let this sink into the heart, your, your heart, if you would. They love it because they love who's there. And they know that who's there loves them deeply in return. I look forward to heaven because I love the God who's there. And I know I am loved by the God who is there. Paradise is good because that's where God is. There's no place that if you magically exist in the place, then all eternity is set and your suffering will fade away. It has nothing to do with the place. It's just a place God created, just like the earth. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is just another place God has created. It's not about the place. It's about who's there. And you're going to learn about that more over the next two weeks. And you can experience heaven on earth and you can, you'll find out that you can experience heaven on earth or God on earth here and now. At the end of the Bible, Jesus spoke to, and John and Paul's writing spoke to, heaven on earth becoming one. That earth is restored and made new again. The dead are raised. There's no crying. There's new creation. There's new Eden. And you will be with the ones you love, not because you're in heaven, but because you are with God. Your high school bully will, will hopefully be there but will be so transformed and consumed by the presence of God as you are too that you won't look at them as your high school bully anymore. They will just be a brother and sister in God's family with you. We have to get out of this idea that heaven is about experiencing something internal or external, excuse me, and start to think about heaven as something because of what we have experienced internally. Forgiveness, peace, completeness. These are from God. They are of heaven, not of this earth. Heaven is not about you. It's about God. And heaven can come to earth when you and I bring that love and forgiveness and joy to our earth. A little slice of heaven appears in the darkness. This is the main point of the biblical authors from Genesis 1 through 3, and really the whole, the whole, um, uh, the whole biblical story for that matter. If you think about it like I once did, that the authors are trying to get it accurately modern, here's the creation theory and all that kind of stuff, then you're not, you're not listening to them. 
You're not listening to them. They're trying to get across to you the love of the Father. They're trying to get across to you where he is in proximity to you and where he wants you to be, and that is with him. So be careful not to think to yourself, well, this whole thing doesn't really match my modern intellectual account of, of scientific theory around creation. Don't be careful not to go there because let's be honest, my kids are not as intellectually smart as I am, but my kids can sure hit you with some truth sometimes if you're humble enough to hear it. Christians should be the ones who put away their snobbery and say, you know what, there's a parts of this thing that I don't fully grasp, but there are some really great parts that I do. And I trust in those great parts. So what is heaven? Well, heaven is where God resides and some other things. But ultimately, heaven is where God is and God can be in you and God can be with you and God can be with the ones that you love. And God wants to be with us now and he wants us to be together for certainly at the end. If you would, bow your heads and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, this was a lot. Hopefully some of us will be willing to go and rewatch it. But that Lord, our conclusion of this, of creation, is not that you are distant, but that you're wanting to be close, that that's how you created us to be. And that we need to respect that you live in a much higher and greater place than ourselves. But that does not mean you are gone. In fact, you want heaven to come to earth. You want heaven to be in our lives. Paul said, we are temples for you to dwell in on earth. Heaven is your heavenly temple. It is where your throne resides, but it is in our hearts where your love can reside. And in that, we can experience a little bit of heaven right here on earth. That heaven is not a place, it is presence, it is relationship. And we can be with you and you want us to be with you. Lord, help us to understand or begin to wrestle with our version of preconceived notion of what heaven is and start to be drawn to this powerful version of heaven that transforms and changes our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, a couple things. I know we're really late. My apologies. <laughs> Questions and response Sunday. It's gonna be the last Sunday of October. If you scan that QR code or just send me an email at the email address, please put your name on it. That way, if we don't have time to talk about it on Sunday, I can email because there is so much to talk about here, but we'd love to have your questions and discuss them as a church, okay? Um, and then also, I have some resources for you. You can take a picture of this. You can ask me afterwards. It'll be online as well. Um, but here's some um, great resources for you. One, I would recommend restarting this message and watching it again. But two, when heaven meets earth, um, the lost world of Genesis 1, it's heavy, but boy, it is really powerful. Um, the Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, again, really heavy, but really a great understanding of heaven and hell. And then Between Two Trees would be the last one I'd recommend. And it is just a really powerful, practical application of the beginning of Genesis 1 all the way through the end of Revelation. So there's some resources if you want to dive in and some of those resources that have influenced and, and helped me to understand um, a new version or maybe the more 
accurate version of heaven. Um, If you would stand, we're going to sing one song about God's goodness, and I hope to see you next week for week two of heaven.